what they see is Putin is the worst criminal in history. The United States is pursuing its historic mission of uh, defending peace and justice. Everyone else in the global South, when you read their journals, they say, yeah, it's a criminal violent aggression, but what's the fuss? This is what you do to us all the time. What's the big excitement about? Yeah, it says, sure, Putin's a war criminal. Takes a war criminal to recognize one like you. There's a lot of talk now about how Russia's being isolated. Well, is Russia being isolated? What do you make of the success that is attained by these disciplines like postmodernism, like poststructuralism in the modern humanities? Why are they so successful? Makes you look like a physicist. Physicists have theories. Why shouldn't we have theories? Uh, let's have theories. If they have no contents, who cares? We're the only ones who look at them anyway. Uh, this is, goes on in Paris more than any other place I know. This adulation, one of the good things about the United States that I like is they don't have any respect for intellectuals. Paris is the opposite. Uh, if uh, Jacques Lacan sneezed, it was on the front page of Le Monde. Well, Jacques Lacan sneezed, you know. Uh, it, it's a very harmful, I think, to the intellectuals and the country. They shouldn't be taken that seriously. So in France, for example, there are people called philosophers, like Bernard-Henri Lévy, B.H.L. Lévy. Why is he a philosopher? He's some guy who shoots his mouth off about things. Uh, doesn't have mostly ridiculous. Uh, but it's a, if he says something, it's very important. If he says uh, we have to bomb Libya, because otherwise there'll be genocide. Yeah, let's go bomb Libya. Uh, was there any basis for it? Of course not. Uh, but uh, this adulation of intellectuals is a very dangerous phenomenon. I mean, if somebody says they have a theory, okay, let's take a look. Let's see what it explains. Uh, what's the content? What are the principles? What does it explain? When you take a look at the postmodern theories, you can't get very far because they're mostly incomprehensible. You know, polysyllabic words that can't figure out what they mean. Colleagues, students, friends, thanks for joining me today for this very anticipated discussion with our uniquely special guest, Professor Noam Chomsky. His reputation precedes any measly introduction I could provide. In fact, I suspect most of you here know him better than you know me. So I know I speak for everybody in attendance when I say that it's a distinct pleasure to have you with us today. Thanks for joining us, Professor Chomsky. Very pleased to be with you. So today's discussion will be centered around mass media and international law. It's a topic that's not really explored and we'll have a specific focus on armed conflicts. The main question we'll be trying to get at is what link might exist between mass media and violations of international law? Before that, I just wanted to start perhaps by asking you about what's been happening the past few months, right? You've got the Russian incursion into Ukraine. That's the first thing that pops to your mind. But you've got also a number of similarly troublesome crises that are taking place, but are more easily dismissed, right? Whether that be the humanitarian crisis in Yemen, the increase of the US-backed Saudi strikes, the Israeli airstrikes in Syria, the territorial incursions in Palestine, the US strikes in Somalia, right? I actually write an analysis on the amount of coverage dedicated to Ukraine as opposed to all the other conflicts in the past couple of months. And the result was about a thousand articles dedicated to Ukraine for every article on any other conflict in, in the major media outlets. So my first question to you is, why do you think there are such immense discrepancies in this media coverage? Are they justified at all? Well, I'll mention another one, an easy experiment you can carry out. It's uh, a rule now for media and commentators that when you refer to the invasion of Ukraine, you say the unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. That's a rule. You want to 
be accepted into the polite society. That's what you say. So I ran a Google search, it's easy, unprovoked invasion of Ukraine, um, two and a half million. Then I ran one on unprovoked invasion of Iraq, about 10,000. And when you look at them, all of them were from marginal anti-war people. Well, that's interesting in itself, but it becomes more interesting when you look at the facts. The facts are the exact opposite. The invasion of Iraq was totally unprovoked. Not any semblance of provocation. Right. The invasion of Ukraine, which is of course criminal aggression, was of course provoked. In fact, it was openly provoked. The United States State Department officially says that uh, we never would ever consider uh, any Russian security concerns. Uh, last September, the uh, Biden administration uh, made an official took an made an official statement. Find it on the White House webpage, which called for enhanced programs to integrate. Ukraine within uh, NATO. Uh, so the programs that Jens Stoltenberg, the uh, Secretary General of NATO, has proudly announced that since 2014, NATO, meaning the United States, has poured advanced weapons into Ukraine, uh, carried out military maneuvers, uh, trained Ukrainian officers, uh, Last September, uh, Biden enhanced this, this is before the invasion recall, with new uh, programs, uh, uh, new training uh, was extended last November. So of course it was provoked. It doesn't give any justification for it, but it was obviously provoked. So here we have an interesting situation. The unprovoked invasion of Iraq is never called the unprovoked invasion of Iraq. It's called a mistake or a blunder or something like that. The totally provoked invasion of Ukraine has to be called the unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. Well, is this the media? Not exactly. It's the intellectual culture where you are, the universities where you are and where I am is a, they create a culture, which actually was described pretty well by George Orwell. Uh, he pointed out in something you probably haven't read that uh, one of the, he says in, in free countries like England, unpopular ideas can be suppressed without the use of force. And he gives some reasons. One of the reasons is a good education like you're getting. If you have a good education, you have instilled into you the understanding that there are certain things it just wouldn't do to say. I'll add a little extension of that. It wouldn't do to think. Uh, that's a good education, the kind you're getting, in fact, that instills into you that understanding. And of course, it shows up in the media and it shows up in the fact that this incredible inversion of fact and disparity can't even get a comment. Nobody would notice it. It's the kind of thing it wouldn't do to say. Oh, well, the reason you didn't read that essay of Orwell's, I suspect, is that it was suppressed. Uh, it was the introduction to animal form. You've all read Animal Form, of course, but it's unlikely that you've read the introduction to it. The introduction was not published. It was found in his unpublished papers about 30 years later. The introduction was addressed to the people of England and said, this is a satire about the totalitarian enemy, but you shouldn't feel so self-righteous because the same things happen in free England. Then he went on to discuss it. Well, that too is the kind of thing it wouldn't do to say. Uh, this goes on constantly. In wartime, it's enhanced. 
automatically. Nothing new about this. Go back to the First World War, for example. It's quite interesting to look at. We can now look at that with some distance, so not really engaged in it. When the war, it's now recognized that nobody, no participant in the war had any justification, none, okay? But that's not the way it was looked at at the time. At the time, in every country, the intellectual class rallied enthusiastically in support of the war. So in Germany, there was a famous declaration of 94 leading intellectuals uh, explaining to the West why they should support the country of Kant, uh, Goethe, you know, peak of civilization and so on. It was exactly the same in France and England and when the United States got into the war in the United States. Now, there were a couple of people who didn't agree, like in Germany, Rosa Luxemburg, Karl Liebknecht, in jail. In England, Bertrand Russell, in jail. In the United States, Eugene Debs, leading later Lieber, in jail. Well, that's the way the intellectual classes respond to the call to war. And we're seeing it right now in front of our eyes, but there's nothing new about it. And it's not just the United States and Europe. It's, uh, I'm sure if we had uh, records from Genghis Khan, we'd probably find something similar. Uh, the task of intellectuals is to line up behind the state power and dominant ideology. That's your job. Uh, there are people who don't follow the rules. Sometimes they end up in jail. In more free societies like ours, they're just kind of marginalized. You know, you can maybe find what they say on some obscure website or something like that, but right. they're not killed, not sent to the gulag, you know. It's uh, sometimes they are incidentally, but not usually it's not nice. So uh, the media reflect this. So take, um, you raised the question about international law. Yes. Let's take a very simple observation about international law, which is one of those things it wouldn't do to say. Uh, the foundation of international law, modern international law is the United Nations Charter. That's the founding document for modern international law. I look at Article 2.4 of the Charter. It bans the threat or use of force in international affairs. In the United States, this is the supreme law of the land under the Constitution. Article six of the constitution says that uh, treaties entered into by the US government are the supreme law of the land and every elected official must adhere to them. Well, every single president violates the US constitution by using the threat or use of force. Does anybody care? I've occasionally talked about this in law schools, just out of curiosity. The faculty listen, they say, it's kind of amusing. Let's go on to the next topic. Okay, so every president violates the supreme law of the land. Who cares? Uh, goes beyond that. Actually, uh, there is something called the International Court of Justice. You know all about it. Uh, Sometimes there are, it makes judgments. Uh, almost always countries adhere to the judgments, but there are some exceptions. In fact, right now, there is one exception in the historical record, which refuses to accept a ruling of the world court. It's the United States uh, in the case when one of the very minor crimes of the United States, it's war against Nicaragua that did go to the world court. 
the court ruled that the United States is engaged in what technically called unlawful use of force, meaning international terrorism, ordered the United States to terminate the attack and to pay massive large reparations. US reacted by escalating the attack. The press reacted, New York Times, by dismissing the court judgment as meaningless because the court is, I'm quoting, a hostile forum. What makes it a hostile forum? It's voted against the United States. So since it's a hostile forum, of course, it's uh, judgment doesn't mean anything. So therefore, it's fine to escalate the uh, crimes for which the US was sentenced. Nicaragua, the aggrieved party, uh, brought a resolution to the Security Council, simply calling on all states to observe international law. Didn't mention anyone, but of course, everybody knew what was intended. United States vetoed it. If I recall correctly, France politely abstained uh, from whether uh, states should observe international law, went to the General Assembly, overwhelming support. United States opposed, Israel opposed. Well, that's international law. Nobody cares. One of the things you're not supposed to say is that international law is a weapon to be used to beat enemies, but it doesn't apply to us. In fact, as I'm sure you know, there is legislation in the United States, yeah. in Europe, it's called the Netherlands Invasion Act, uh, but, but the technical term is different. Uh, this legislation passed under George W. Bush, second Bush, authorizes the US executive to use force to rescue any American who might be brought to The Hague. Okay, that's uh, our love for international law. You can easily can, I mean, take, uh, you can read articles, take the New York Times, most important newspaper in the world. It's leading foreign affairs specialist highly regarded as Thomas Friedman. He has an op-ed a couple of weeks ago, which is worth reading. The, he says, we, we don't know what to do, we're lost. We've never been in a situation like this before where we have to deal with a war criminal, Putin. How can we possibly deal with a war criminal? How can we possibly deal with every US president? How can we deal with Henry Kissinger, uh, the leading genocidaire in the world who called for a massive bombing campaign against Cambodia, anything that flies against anything that moves. See if you can find a call for genocide like that in the archival record. How can we innocent Americans deal with people like Putin a war criminal, not like George W. Bush who invaded Iraq. Uh, we don't have any problem with them. Actually, it's interesting to look if you really want to look at the, the media. So on the 20th anniversary of the invasion of Afghanistan, devastating, murderous invasion had absolutely no pretext. You can go into that if you like. The pretexts are total lies can easily go into it, uh, but let's put that aside. On the 20th anniversary, the press, to its credit, did have uh, a, uh, an interview with the gentleman who invaded Afghanistan and Iraq. The interview was in the Washington Post, one of the two national newspapers. It was in the style section the style section of the post. It was an interview of what they described as this lovable, goofy grandpa playing with his grandchildren and uh, showing off the portraits he'd painted of the 
famous people he'd met. That's, we know how to deal with war criminals like that. Was there a comment about it anywhere? Yeah, one, I made a comment about it. Nobody else cared. It's, that's the intellectual class. So even though nobody cares, there, there seems to be always a need for legal justification, right? Whether it be Ukraine, Iraq, Afghanistan, there's always a legal argument behind it, legal rhetoric that they there's use no to- argument. There's no arguments. Take, uh, you take F Iraq, okay? The US and Britain tried to construct a pretext. Right. It's very interesting to look at. Tells us more about the intellectual classes. They appealed to a Security Council resolution, 687, you can look it up. The resolution called on Iraq to eliminate its weapons of mass destruction. And the US and Britain claimed that uh, Iraq hadn't lived up to that. Well, even if it had been, it was false, of course, they had lived up to it. Uh, but even if it had been correct, it's no pretext for invasion. Take a look at the UN Charter again. Absolutely no. Okay, now let's take a look at 687, uh, Article 14. It calls on all signers to work to establish a nuclear weapons free zone in the Middle East. Well, what about that? If we had a nuclear weapons free zone in the Middle East, would end any of the talk about the alleged threat of Iranian nuclear weapons. So why don't we have it? Well, interesting. Uh, Iraq is strongly in favor of it. The Arab states are very strongly in favor of it. Uh, G77, Global South, strongly in favor of it. Europe's in favor of it. Why doesn't it happen? The US vetoes it. Every time it comes up, the US vetoes it. In other words, the US and Britain are in violation of the Security Council resolution that they used to fabricate a pretext to invade Iraq. Can anybody say this? Yeah, I say it and I'm not killed because uh, we live in a free society, but nobody can hear it. You can't say it anywhere near the mainstream. Oh, instantly, why doesn't the US, uh, uh, why does the US veto it? Which would end the whole Iran problem. Simple reason. It would mean that Israel's nuclear weapons arsenal would have to be inspected. And the US doesn't want that. In fact, the US does not even recognize that Israel has nuclear weapons. Of course it does and everybody knows it, but the US won't recognize it. And there's a good reason for that too, which is also one of these things it wouldn't do to say. If the US recognized that Israel has nuclear weapons, US law would come into play, like the Symington Amendment, which bans US military and economic aid to countries that develop nuclear weapons outside the international framework. Well, so we are threatening a war with Iran called the gravest threat to world peace uh, in order to ensure that US military and economic aid can illegally go to Israel, illegally under US law, okay? Can anybody say that? Search, I can say it, I've said it a hundred times. Uh, maybe you can find two or three other people who can say it, but in a well-disciplined free society, these things are, as George Orwell said, uh, unpopular ideas can be suppressed without the use of force. Thanks to a good education, the discipline of the intellectual classes are quite willing to subordinate themselves to power systems and the media who of course reflect all this. So you can get an op-ed in the New York Times from its uh, main uh, thinker saying, how can we possibly deal with a war criminal? That's an experience we've never had and no comment. That's the interesting thing, no comment. 
well, it's pretty easy to go on, but that's the norm. You see it in France, you see it in England, you see it in the United States. It's of course more important in the United States because the US is overwhelmingly the most powerful state in the world. You see it in Russia and we laugh at it correctly. You read Russian propaganda, it's laughable. So we laugh at it, ridicule it properly. How about looking at ourselves? No, sorry, that's uh, not permissible. Well, while we're on laughable versus more insidious forms of propaganda, what we notice, for example, is in the United States and in coverage, instead of having right differences in coverage, one other technique I've, I've seen around is the use of legal terminology. So if you look at Che Jarrah, for example, in Palestine, we used evictions instead of ethnic displacement, right? Occupied territories will be administered areas in the New York Times. Um, assassinations or aggressions will become surgical operations. Why, as a linguist, what do you think this substitution of legal terms does? What's the effect of this? I don't have anything to say as a linguist but just with a person with minimal common sense, it's quite obvious what's happening. Minimal common sense. So let's take Palestine. There, the uh, critique of Russian invasion of Ukraine, which is of course correct, it's criminal aggression. Uh, the critique is they're trying to occupy Ukraine. Is there a country which is under illegal occupation? Yeah, Palestine, illegal occupation in violation of Security Council resolutions. The annexation of the Golan Heights, the occupation of Gaza, the occupation of the West Bank and the settlement in the West Bank and in Jerusalem, annexation of Jerusalem, it's all occupation. And it's not only occupation, but it's in violation of explicit and repeated Security Council resolutions, resolutions which incidentally the US voted for, all occupation, brutal, vicious, murderous occupations in Gaza. Uh, there's a million children who can't get water to drink. There's no water, it's poison because Israel destroyed the uh, power plants so you can barely get electricity, uh, destroyed the sewage system. So there's total pollution everywhere. They don't have water in an illegally occupied territory. That's a, a million people, million children, two million people. The West Bank, if you read, there's a couple of very good Israeli reporters, Gidon Levy, Amira Haas, occasionally a couple others, Read them, you can read them in Haaretz in the English edition. Every day, practically, they report a, a terrorist attack in the West Bank by Israeli settlers, illegal settlers, and the IDF, the army, which either protects them or takes part in it. Practically every day, all illegal, all in violation of Security Council resolutions all in occupied territory. Any word about it? The only thing we can talk about is that Russia is trying and failing to occupy Ukraine, but not what's actually happening before our eyes in the country, which happens to be by far, no one even close, the leading recipient of US military and economic aid. Uh, as I mentioned, illegal under US law for the reasons I mentioned. Nobody can talk about this. Does it take special genius to see it? It's all right in front of our eyes. It's so immediate. You just have to look at the front page of the newspaper. So today, take today's New York Times. Uh, there's a front page article on how one of the American-backed uh, settler groups is trying to turn parts of Jerusalem into a tourist park, which will 
uh, overcome the, uh, of course, moving Palestinian uh, inhabitants out, taking their land and uh, trying to erase the boundary between uh, East and West Jerusalem, which is an old Israeli effort. They want to annex what's called Jerusalem. What they call Jerusalem is actually about five times the size of whatever was Jerusalem. Takes in lots of Palestinian villages from which the inhabitants were expelled. It was all annexed illegally. Actually, there's one country in the world which now recognizes the illegal annexation of the Syrian Golan Heights, uh, Jerusalem, uh, Gaza, and the West Bank. United States under Trump, Trump reversed US policy. Biden has kept to it. Uh, so now the US recognizes the illegal occupation and funds the daily atrocities that go on in the occupied areas while we fulminate about uh, Putin's effort to occupy Ukraine. Uh, I mean, if somebody was watching this from outer space, they think we're insane, you know, correctly, you know, because it's all so, transparent. Yeah. It's not hidden. Nobody's concealing anything. So the media does this to manufacture public consent for these expeditions abroad, correct? Does, do we have, so if we admit that the media influences public opinion, um, can you draw a direct link between the media's manufacture of consent and these violations of international law? Oh, it's very obvious. I mean, most people don't listen to this conversation. They look at something on the, you know, uh, maybe on television, or they see something on Facebook. That's it. What they see is Putin is the worst criminal in history. The United States is pursuing its historic mission of uh, defending peace and justice. And then you go back to work, you know, you go back to whatever you're doing, playing your video game or go to work or whatever it is. Well, what do you expect people to believe? Uh, right now about over a third of Americans think that the United States should go to war in Ukraine, even if it leads to a nuclear war which would of course destroy everybody. But who, you don't know that. If you get your news from Facebook, uh, war is some kind of game that goes on over there. Doesn't happen here, which is true in fact. The United States hasn't been attacked since the war of 1812. Wars are something that we do over there, not, not that happens here. A nuclear war, well, probably the Russians won't do it, you know. Uh, then you go back to your life. Yeah, that's manufacture of consent. And it works in every area. Uh, Ed Herman and I went through lots of cases, but I should say that Ed Herman had passed away, unfortunately, a year ago. Uh, he, and, he and I did a lot of work together, but we disagreed on one thing. Uh, he regarded the media as the main instrument of manufacture of consent. My feeling is it's the intellectual classes. Mm. Not, of course, represented in the media, but quite apart from that, do their own job. In fact, a lot of my own work, not jointly with Ed, is about intellectuals, right. mostly the liberal intellectuals. The right-wing intellectuals are too easy a target so there's no point talking about them. Mm -hmm. uh, leave it to the liberals to attack them. It's the liberal intellectuals who are the real criminals. And they're immune because nobody can attack them. So that's perfect. It takes us right next to our next question, which is about the intellectuals. You expressed a lot of, say, skepticism when confronted to the idea of theory whether it be in foreign affairs or international conflicts, if there is a, a body of theory that applies to all of these, right? You, you were sort of uh, uh, septic to, to an extent. What do you make uh, of the success that is attained by 
these academic uh, schools, disciplines like postmodernism, like post-structuralism in the modern humanities? Why are they so successful? Makes you look like a physicist. If physicists have theories. Why shouldn't we have theories? Uh, well, let's have theories. If they have no content, who cares? We're the only ones who look at them anyway. So uh, then now we're, you know, we're big thinkers. Uh, this is goes on in Paris more than any other place I know. This adulation. One of the good things about the United States that I like is they don't have any respect for intellectuals. Uh, they're disregarded. Paris is the opposite. Uh, if uh, Jacques Lacan sneezed, it was on the front page of Le Monde. Well, Jacques Lacan sneezed, you know. Uh, it, it's a very harmful, I think, to the intellectuals and the country. They shouldn't be taken that seriously. So in France, for example, there are people called philosophers, like Bernard-Henri Lévy. Why is he a philosopher? He's some guy who shoots his mouth off th about things. Uh, doesn't have mostly ridiculous, uh, but it's a, if he says something, it's very important. If he says uh, we have to bomb Libya, because otherwise there'll be genocide. Yeah, let's go bomb Libya. Uh, was there any basis for it? Of course not. Uh, but uh, this adulation of intellectuals is a very dangerous phenomenon. I mean, if somebody says they have a theory, okay, let's take a look. Let's see what it explains. Uh, what's the content? What are the principles? What does it explain? When you take a look at the postmodern theories, you can't get very far because they're mostly incomprehensible. You know, polysyllabic words that can't figure out what they mean, uh, language. What is the content of some of these theories? I mean, if I ask a physicist friend to explain to me something about quantum theory that I don't understand, uh, he can do it. He can do it in simple language at my level. Can't do it with postmodern theory. Nobody can explain it. Uh, well, maybe it's some new achievement of human intelligence, which surpasses anything in the past and uh, ordinary mortals can't have access to it. It's a possibility. There's another possibility, which I leave to you. Uh, but uh, that's the question you should ask. And this extends beyond, like take uh, international relations. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not postmodern. It's, uh, there are IR theories basically two theories, uh, what's called realism and uh, uh, idealism. It's mostly in the United States, a lot of work on IR theory. So idealism says, uh, uh, will, it's called sometimes Wilsonian idealism. Uh, uh, the United States is, uh, well, I'll quote, a leading figure. Uh, the United States is the only country that is guided by a transcendent vision of bringing peace, justice, and freedom to the United, to not only to the United States, but to the entire world. Of course, it makes mistakes. Anybody can make mistakes, but uh, that's the guiding vision of the United States. Actually, I'm quoting a very interesting source the founder of hard-headed realist uh, theory, Hans Morgenthau. Okay, he's a tough-minded, good scholar. So he has a book called The Purpose of American Policy. No other countries have purposes, just the United States. And the purpose of American policy is this transcendent vision. Now he's a good scholar. So he goes through the record and he says, well, of course, if you look at history, the United States hasn't lived up to its vision. In fact, 100% of the time it's violated. But he says, that doesn't mean anything. He says, to criticize 
the United States for not living up to its vision is like, I'm quoting him, the error of atheism. It's like the error of atheism, which condemns God for not being merciful and just. So we shouldn't fall into that error. What matters is the picture of the world as it's presented to us through our own interpretation, which gives us the transcendent vision of idealism. Well, that's the, uh, that's Wilsonian idealism as presented by the most hard-headed, tough-minded IR theorist, Hans Morgenthau, who, uh, as I say, was a good scholar. So he recognized what happened. Uh, what's realism? Realism says the world's chaotic. Everybody's out for themselves, period. That's realism. Okay, it's kind of a theory, but uh, hardly merits the term theory. And in fact, it's just, it, it overlooks major factors. So realist theorists don't look at the internal structure of the society. States are the actors. States are uh, pursuing their own security and trying to uh, overcome uh, competitors. First of all, it's mostly false. States don't pursue their own security. They pursue the security of privileged sectors within them. States are not just entities. They have internal distribution of power. So in the United States, power is in the hands of overwhelmingly a highly concentrated business sector. They pretty much determine policy. This incidentally is not a novel insight. It was made by Adam Smith, not pointed out that in, he was talking about England, of course, he said in, in England, the merchants and manufacturers are the, what he called the masters of mankind. They are the principal of architects of government policy and they make use of their power to ensure that their own interests are very well taken care of, no matter how uh, harmful it is to others, including the people of England. Well, that's Adam Smith. He was way more sophisticated than realist international theory because he recognized that states are not just units. They are systems with internal power structure. In his day, the merchants and manufacturers of England, our day, mega corporations, financial institutions, they pretty much set policy, no matter how grievous the impact on others, including the people of the United States, including US security. They don't care about US security. Easy to demonstrate. If we had time, I don't know if there is, I could run through it, I've written about it. So realist theory, first of all, is extremely shallow. Secondly, it's false. And thirdly, it ignores crucial elements of how policy is made. Now there's a lot of good work in realist theory, like Morgenthau or Mearsheimer or Waltz or others, very good descriptive work. But as soon as you move to the theory, it disappears. Wilsonian idealism is of course just a bad joke. You know, that's IR theory. Uh, at least it's intelligible, unlike postmodern theories, which are just totally unintelligible. But but, uh, but amid all this, the, these charlatans in the postmodern French, let's say the French academic circles, there's one person that you sort of set aside. And you said that if you were to rip away all the, the haziness and the confusion, you might find substance beneath it. Right, that was Michel Foucault. What what made you think that Foucault stood out, uh, aside, or had some utility in his work, uh, or in what he expressed? Well, a little more nuanced than that. I never said anything about Foucault's theoretical work. I said he did some good descriptive studies. Mm -hmm. I think he did. There's some useful descriptive work. I think you can take away the whole. Uh, 
complex theoretical apparatus and everything he's famous for, put that aside. And then from the descriptive work, I think you can learn some things. Right. Uh, if, isn't the propaganda model a, an analytical framework that interprets and applies the conduct in media affairs in that theory, technically? The propaganda, we called, we purposely called it a model, not a theory. And in fact, in the first chapter, we discussed this. We said, we're not presenting a theory of anything. This is much too shallow to be called a theory. Hmm. This is just a model of how the media work. Uh, Ed Herman, who was the main author of that book, was a professor of finance at the Wharton School. His main work was on academic work, was on corporate control, uh, did some of the major scholarly work on that. And uh, the first chapter is mostly his. He said, let's just take a look at the institutional structure of the media. What are they? Well, the media are uh, private institutions, capitalist institutions, profit making. They sell a product to a market. The pro product is readers. The market is advertisers. So the media, say the New York Times, are a business, major corporation, in fact, which uh, sells readers to advertisers. Who are the advertisers? Other major businesses. If we look more closely, the, uh, uh, the corporate owners of the media are closely linked to government. They flow in and out of government. Uh, they're part of the same elite structure. Uh, the government is a major propaganda agency itself. We go through this in the book. It pours out tons of propaganda. And of course, that influences their friends in the corporate boardroom who happen to own and run the New York Times or the Washington Post and others. So what we have is a system in which a huge corporations are selling a commodity product, you, uh, to other businesses closely linked to government. Uh, they all have common interests like uh, what Adam Smith described, nothing profound. The masters have to have their interests peculiarly attended to. We didn't quote Smith, we could have, uh, but uh, that's about as far as theory goes in these fair matters, Adam Smith, no improvement since. Uh, so that's the system. And then we simply asked, what do you expect to come out of this system? Well, pretty obvious what you'd predict. And the rest of the book is just examples to show, yeah, that's what happens. And we tried to pick the most crucial examples, the examples that the media select themselves as their great achievements. So we tried to pick these and ask, well, let's take a look at them. Turns out over and over systematically, it's the opposite of what they claim. Hmm. Okay. That's what the book's about. Incidentally, right. uh, there's a part of the book which nobody reads, the last third of it, which is a defense, a defense of the media against totally illegitimate attacks by Freedom House. Freedom House is supposed is hailed as the great defender of freedom of the press. They launched a huge attack against the media two-volume attack against the media, claiming that the media had lost the Vietnam War by their aggressive uh, adversarial reporting. Well, that was all over the press, you know, huge, a lot of publicity. I actually took the trouble of reading the two volumes. I'm probably the only person who read it. Total lies, 100% flat lying literally in the book we go through it step by step turns out what the media did was what they usually do the reporters on the ground are honest courageous they describe what they see 
It's trustworthy, they're very brave, do good work, but they're all doing it within an ideological framework which reshapes what comes out. So yes, we describe a massacre carried out by US troops and it was a mistake. They didn't understand their mission of uh, trying to bring democracy to Vietnam. So yes, what they describe is correct, but they're intellectuals. So they have internalized the doctrines of the intellectual classes, which are United States is force for good, transcendental vision, makes mistakes, but everybody can make mistakes. So the reporting is the Freedom House attack was pure lies, almost 100%. And the truth is honest, courageous reporting within a fr an ideological framework, which distorts entirely what's happening. Well, once you understand this, it's not very difficult. You can read the New York Times and pick out of it what makes sense, compensate for the bias and distortion and learn a lot. It's the first newspaper I look at in the morning as the most comprehensive coverage of the world, all biased and distorted, but you can overcome that. It's not profound. While we're on, on the topic of theory, I wanted to ask you about something that's happening in the legal academic world. Everybody seems very eager to, to claim this mantle of critical theory, critical legal scholarship under seldom a very unified ideological corpus. I'd be hard pressed to tell you exactly one thing that sort of they all do or they all agree upon. But usually they'll, they'll embed either racial themes or gender themes or say third world themes uh, or economic themes to the scholarship. What, what do you think about the effectiveness of these attempts in scholarship to introduce an identitarian aspect to, to research or to academia? Do you think it has any legs? These are things that should be there. We should be talking about the real world in legal theory too. Real world includes racism, sexism, um, all kinds of other forms of repression. Yes, we should introduce them into the legal system, but with rational approaches, not uh, making them, uh, not going overboard about them, not saying that if uh, somebody gives a talk in which he mentions uh, uh, gen genetics, we have to bar him from talking, not that. And that's happening. Uh, some mainly young people are being so overwhelmed by these identity issues, which are real, that they're using them to move towards instituting a kind of totalitarian system, where if you say something I don't like, uh, we ban you. That's happening all over. Actually, it just happened to me, if I give you an example, from the left. I gave a talk and on, it was on what we're discussing, Ukraine and so on. Mm -hmm. I pointed out that there's two uh, options. One option is a negotiated settlement, which will end the horrors. And of course, it'll have to give Putin some kind of escape patch. That's the nature of negotiation diplomacy. One possibility. The other possibility is a grotesque experiment where we take a chance and see whether Putin will just slink away quietly in total defeat or whether he'll use the force that of course he has to devastate Ukraine. That's the experiment. Those are the two options. And then I talked about commentary I said, almost no one advocates the first option. Almost everyone says, let's carry out the grotesque experiment, which too horrible to consider. And then I said, I found two people in the Anglo-American world who did advocate the same solution, 
two people, of course, there are plenty of academics and others who advocate it, but people who can make it into the mainstream, uh, political figures. One of them is Jeremy Corbyn in England, who did advocate this and was expelled from the Labour Party in retaliation. In the United States, I found one person who said, look, let's put an end to the murder and destruction. Let's move to negotiations. Let's settle this and try to live in peace. Donald Trump. Uh, that led to a huge outrage on the left. You can find it on Twitter, on all the left media, huge denunciations. How can you tell the truth about Trump? That's illegal. You have to lie about him because he's a hated enemy. And if he said something sensible, you have to suppress it. Take a look at Twitter or Facebook or whatever you look at. You yeah. see an outpouring of rage about this <laughs> article I submitted to one of the left sites insisted that this be excluded because you can't tell the truth about Trump. Okay, that's the totalitarian left thinking young people mostly honest genuine genuinely thinking we're doing something good but just not thinking what they're doing is uh basically gave, giving a gift to the far right they love it far right of course loves it they eat it up uh and it's the wrong thing to do it's joining the techniques of suppression of the mainstream society and saying, we can do it too. We'll be as rotten as you are and we'll meanwhile give you a gift. So when you get back to your question, these issues should be brought in, mm. but in a sane and sensible way. Think it through, think through what you're doing and the consequences of it. That's so then the, the intellectuals and the academics are part and parcel of this manufacture of consent then because they're brought in as experts or their voice by virtue of being more ideologized or being more obedient because they are in a place of privilege uh, or because they like to use their exclusionary tactics to various scientific as, as scientists it does this mean that any efforts produced by academics are inevitably divorced from either reality or uh, they'll, they'll be sort of inefficient or uh, regressive in a way? Well, I don't want to exaggerate. Uh, there is, there are elements of the intellectual classes who don't fall for this game, don't play this game. They're not the ones who you see headlined in the press, uh, but they're there and they do good serious work. Uh, they're usually placed on the margins, but they're there. And it can be, it certainly can be done. And they've had an effect. A lot of them are what uh, Gramsci called organic intellectuals. They become involved with popular movements and try to provide what help they can with their special privilege and knowledge and uh, help them out and participate with them. That can be very effective. Uh, plenty of people like that. Those are the, uh, some of them just become spokespersons like Martin Luther King became a very eloquent spokesperson for the popular movements that were developing and made a major contribution. And in fact, is despised. So it's worth noting, take a look at Martin Luther King. Mm -hmm. There's now a Martin Luther King day to celebrate him listen to the rhetoric on Martin Luther King Day. It's very striking. It ends in 1963 with his famous uh, I Have a Dream speech. Mm -hmm. Actually, King made a second I Have a Dream speech the evening before he was assassinated. He was assassinated when he was supporting a strike of sanitation workers, poor people, black and white, the poorest, most oppressed in the country. He was supporting a strike. He was bitterly denounced for that 
by Northern liberals. They said he had lost his message. They loved him when he was attacking uh, racist Alabama sheriffs, but they hated him when he came to the North and started talking about class issues and Northern liberal repression. He was gone. So he made a speech, the, and I have a dream speech. He said, it's like Moses, I can see the promised land. I'm not going to get there. But if you struggle, you can get there. Uh, talking to pressed workers. He was killed the next day. Uh, you don't hear that. Uh, what you hear about Martin Luther King is his courage, which was real, in attacking vicious racists in the South. So as long as it's somebody else, we can praise the person who attacks them. Not us, please. Come back and talk about us, you're finished, okay? Right, we forget that the, his campaign was actually called the Poor People's Campaign. It was, it was also class-based. He was trying to start a poor people's campaign. Right. And in fact, it's interesting what happened to it. The campaign was supposed to travel through the cities of the South where the great events had taken place, end up in Washington, have a camp called Resurrection City. Uh, after his death, his widow, Coretta King, led the march, went to Washington, set up Resurrection City. They were trying to appeal to Congress to pass legislation that would assist poor and oppressed people, black and white. It was the most liberal Congress in American history. Nothing. They were allowed to sit there for a while, then they were dispersed and sent home. It was the end of the Poor People's Campaign. One last question, because I know that you're, you, you have other engagements as well. Uh, so if the intellectuals and the media class partake in this manufacture of consent, where they influence, let's say, public opinion for these invasions abroad, how come public opinion for both Iraq and Afghanistan flipped, declined consider considerably towards the end of both of those conflicts? Uh, and how is it that the US left Afghanistan at the end, even though the media has been trying to manufacture consent for two decades? Well, let's take Afghanistan. Now, the Afghans are just so backward and primitive that they can't uh, uh, accept our benevolent efforts to improve their lives uh, by bombing their villages and uh, uh, humiliating them by dragging the men off into torture chambers. They're so backward, they just don't appreciate this. So we'll have to pull out. Uh, uh, you know, and uh, it's costing us too much. In fact, that's the only question. How much does it cost us? Okay. Now take a look at Vietnam. Mm. You know, to the last tiny fraction, how much Americans were hurt. Everything. How many Americans were harmed by chemical warfare? know everyone. Do we know anything about the deformed fetuses that are appearing right now in Saigon hospitals from the effects of US chemical warfare? Well, you tell me. Okay. It's the cost to us that matters. Why should we expend our wealth and uh, goodness and benevolence for these backward people. Looks a little bit different from the point of view of the victims. In fact, we see it very dramatically today. I don't know if you've done it, but it's useful to look at a sanctions map mm -hmm. on uh, Russia. Sanctions map are Europe, the English speaking countries, and the country that Apartheid South Africa called honorary whites, Japan. Uh, that's the sanctions, nobody else. Everyone else in the global south, when you read the journals, they say, 
you know, it's a criminal violent aggression, but what's the fuss? This is what you do to us all the time. What's the big excitement about? Yeah, it says, sure, Putin's a war criminal. Takes a war criminal to recognize one, like you, you know. Uh, that's the global south, the civilized part of the world. It's not what you read in Europe or the United States. And this, this split is very sharp. And there's a lot of, I don't know about France, but in the United States, there's a lot of commentary on what's wrong with the global south. Why is the global south out of line? Why don't they join us? Something wrong about them. Could it be maybe there's something wrong about us? No, that's impossible. In fact, there's a lot of interesting, going back to international relations, there's a lot of talk now about how Russia's being isolated. Well, is Russia being isolated? Russia's linking up with China, it's linking up with India, Indonesia, Saudi Arabia is making moves towards them. Who's getting isolated? Well, it's going to have a big effect on world affairs. That's for sure. Thank you, Professor Chomsky. This was a privilege and, and an honor. And we're also grateful to, to have had this opportunity. Thank you so much for, for joining us today. Pleased to be with you. Mm -hmm.